right. I think uh, someone like me grew up in a church, uh, much like Jessica did. I took my faith, my Christianity for granted. I think it, you know, it's just something that was always a part of my life. When I was um, growing up, I watched this TV show called Family Ties. Does anyone remember watching Family Ties? It's Michael J. Fox. Fox. Okay. So some, uh, <laughs> uh, within our first service, was a, uh, nobody really except for a couple, but um, it was the picture of the perfect family, right? This ideal family with uh, a mom and a dad and two daughters and, and a son. And I remember like this, this, this perfect picture of the family being, being busted open one show I was watching when the five of them sat down to eat and they just started eating and they didn't pray before they ate. And I was like, dude, that's like, what's wrong with them? That's not a real family. That's so un-American. That's like not the way it ought to be. And it was like, boggled my mind that anyone could, could do that because in my mind, it just felt like everyone went to church. That's what it was. When I was growing up, when I was like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, like everybody went to church. Al- along the way, um, in the past, you know, decades since, um, people have come and people have gone. People have left church and culture has changed a lot and it's given rise to a new group of people, a group of people who uh, some of them went to church when they were younger and stopped going to church, okay? They called these people the nun, I'm sorry, the duns. I'm done with church. I went, I've been there, done that, and I'm over with it. Uh, these are called the duns. And then there's a, a group of people called the nuns, not like the Catholic nuns who wear uh, a habit, um, sister or something rather, not those kind of nuns, but the N-O-N-E nuns, people who have never been to church and don't want anything to do with church. The nuns and duns have risen up within our culture, and so we don't take for granted anymore that everybody goes to church or that everybody's a Christian or that everybody confesses to be a Christian. And when that began to happen, uh, numbers of people identifying as Christians in America began to decrease. And so the question that churches began to ask was, why is this happening and what can we do in order to bring people back? And this gave rise to a lot of things like the seeker-sensitive movement, which you may have heard of, or the church growth movement that talks about the homogeneous unit principle that uh, you have to have everyone looking in the same kind of way in order for uh, for a church to grow, different things like that. But they started saying things like, well, we have to be relevant. That's the most important thing. The church and the Bible and the Christianity that we are pushing today is irrelevant to the great majority of people in our world. That's kind of the mentality, and that's one of the things that people uh, began saying. So um, what, they don't want to come to churches that look like their grandma's church. So they don't want to come to churches with great big steeples. And so we need to change the way we do church. They don't want to come. And, and these songs that they sing, these hymns, and people don't know how to read these notes. And they're like strange. And they're like 18 verses long. And, and they're weird, weird songs. And so let's sing different songs where we have a real praise band up here that looks like the bands that we uh, listen to at the House of Blues. And, and let's make sure that the guy who's leading praise has a big scarf on even when it's like, hot in Florida and he's got shorts on and Birkenstocks. Let's have that kind of person. And the people who are up there have to wear uh, skinny jeans and, and make them wear short sleeve shirts and wear, have their tattoos showing so everyone knows that they've got a history so people know their past and they're relevant and they understand. And then they read the Bible and they say, wow, this Bible is weird. Like, how come the pages are so thin? Like, my Harry Potter book pages are not this thin. And, and why are they written in two different columns? Let's not have people read this Bible. Let's just throw it up on the screen. None of which is bad. But all of this to say that there's a desire to be relevant and for the message of Christianity, for the church to be relevant. All of these things are good. All of these things are necessary. And all of these things are absolutely vital in terms of 
uh, articulating the Christian faith in a way that people understand. We have to not only exegete the scripture, we have to exegete the culture in order that we bring the word in a way that people understand it. But I think a lot of times what happens is we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we cross this very thin line where we say our culture has changed. We live in a politically correct climate. We live in a culture where political correctness is the darling and the poster child of the 21st century in which we live. Therefore, we can't offend people. If you offend them, they're not going to come back. If you say anything, if you do anything, if you talk about the way that they live in a way that offends them, they're not going to come back, and that's going to be bad for the church. And therefore, in the name of trying to reach more people, sometimes churches cross a line and begin looking a lot like their culture to the point where it's almost indistinguishable. What does Jesus say to a church like that, to a church that's wrestling and struggling with the temptation of wanting to be palatable to those around them while trying to preserve themselves as well? One of the great gifts of Scripture is that for every situation we go through, there is a word from God from his word. Revelation chapter 2. There was a church that was very much like that in modern-day Turkey, in ancient-day Asia Minor. It was the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It was the center from which Rome ruled over all of the territories of Asia, the church of Pergamum. And inside of that city, there was a church that was wrestling with the very same issues that we face as a church in the 21st century. What would Jesus say to such a church. Revelation chapter 2, we'll read verses 12 through 17. This is the word of God for the people of God then, the people of God now, for every generation in between and every generation to come. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is God's word. What is Jesus saying to us here as we overhear his letter, these words to the church in Pergamum? Three thoughts here, okay, three thoughts here. First one, pretty simple, pretty straightforward, not mind-blowing. First thing is this, Satan wants to destroy the church. Okay. 
Many, many years ago, I remember hearing about this pastor who was on an airplane, and seated next to him was another man. He didn't know who he was, but the man had flashcards, and he was flipping through them uh, one by one, and they had names on them, and the man looked like he was praying. And so the pastor was, he was encouraged by that. Obviously, you know, to see anybody praying and engaging in the faith that you have is an encouraging thing. And so as he's praying, he's just waiting for him to stop. And then as he, he puts his cards down, he says, hey, uh, I love that you're praying. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian too. And the guy was very standoffish, didn't say anything back to him. And the pastor was a little bit weirded out by it. He's like, um, is there something that you're praying about? And the man, without really looking and making eye contact, he said, I'm not one of you. And the pastor said, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? He said, I'm, a, I'm a, from the church of Satan, and I'm praying for the downfall of pastors in America. And the pastor, obviously, you know, it's not every day you hear somebody say that to you. Take it aback, he's, he, at a, at maybe he, didn't, he was tongue-tied, he said, is my name on that list? And he said, if it's not on mine, it's on someone else's. Satan wants to destroy the church. You can do it one way or the other. Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, said, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. He said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And then in the next breath, he says, faithful witness Antipas was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Do you understand this? God is everywhere. Like, where is God? God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. Like, Satan is not everywhere at the same time. And so even though there was persecution all over Asia Minor, we read about it in, in different places, people are suffering. There's persecution fiercely in the, throughout the Roman Empire. Jesus of no other place does he say, Satan lives in your city. In other words, Jesus says, Satan may have a vacation home in Ephesus. He may hang out as a snowbird in Smyrna, but his homestead exemption is filed in Pergamum. This is his permanent residence. This is where he lives, and this is where he dwells. It's a hard place to live, isn't it? Very difficult place to live. I don't know if you've been to places where you just felt like, man, I feel like Satan incarnate lives here. You've been to places like that. If you've been to places like in the mission field, maybe, you will hear stories like this or you talk to people who've been to different places. Like some folks who've been to uh, across the board in the 38th parallel in Korea, they will tell you, man, going into that place, it just feels dark. You just feel like this oppressive blanket over you as soon as you walk into that place. People will say that about certain places in Africa, in the Middle East. You hear, I, I've heard from pastors who say, when we went to Haiti, okay, we went, we've been to Haiti, we did humanitarian stuff, no problem, but as soon as we start to worship, it's like the demons rise up from the midst of these places where voodoo worship is central uh, to the hearts of many people within that island. You go to different places and you may feel this sense in which, man, I feel like the presence of the enemy is thick within this place. You ever been to places like that? If you've been to a place like that, then you would know a little bit of what Jesus says when he says, hey, in Pergamum, Satan dwells there. That's where he, he's got a throne there. 
Why does Jesus say that? Well, because he knows what nobody else knows. But it could be because there were four major gods that were worshipped in Pergamum as part of the Roman Empire. See, Pergamum was, again, it was a capital of Asia Minor. So Rome, Rome had their official headquarters there. From there, they would exert influence over the entire region. And so emperor worship was huge in those days. And you remember the emperor at the time that John was writing was a man named Domitian. The mission of Domitian was to cure the world of the Christian condition. That was Domitian. He was weird. You know, like most emperors, all emperors up until this point in time, they, when they live, they're like an emperor. Hey, I'm a pretty cool guy. I'm a king. I sit on my throne. But when the emperor dies, then people memorialize them as a god. They're kind of like artists. They're like nobody when they're alive, but when they die, they become like rich and famous. That's what emperors were like. But the mission wasn't like that. He's like, you know what, guys? Let's just cut to the chase. Just make me a god right now. Call me a god right now. This guy was psycho. Like, he was nuts. And so he would mint coins with his image and call himself God. And, and so Domitian was worshipped in that place. The center of imperial worship in the Roman Empire in Asia Minor was headquartered in Pergamum. There was also a, a, a god named Asclepius, okay, Asclepius. Um, some of you may know, if you're in the medical field, you may, have know, you may know him. But he is the god of healing in, in the pantheon of gods in the empire. And so Asclepius' symbol was the serpent, was a snake. So, you know, I don't know, maybe someone can give a better explanation, but the symbol of modern medicine is a pole, right, is a staff with a snake wrapped around it. Kind of weird when it's snakes that actually bite you and cause people to die, but it's a sign of healing. It's a strange thing. But part of it may go back to Asclepius, who was a Roman god of healing. And what you would do if you, there was a temple in Pergamum to this god Asclepius, and what you want to do if you were sick, you had a sick friend, you had a sick brother, you had a sick mother, father, whomever it is, you're sick. You go to the temple, and in the temple, all over the floor of the temple were snakes. It's not snakes on a plane, it's snakes in the temple. And they're all over the place, and they're crawling around. And what you needed to do, according to the myth, mythology and the worship and the religion of Asclepius, is you needed to lay down on the floor and let these snakes crawl all over you until you get healed. Anybody want to get healed by the God of Asclepius? This is insanity. Right? This is crazy stuff. When I was in college, actually, it was at the college that Olivia went to, James Madison University. There was a campus ministry retreat. And at that retreat, man, that, that, there was some really great things that were happening at James Madison during that time. And one of my buddies was leading praise at this retreat. It's a retreat where, during a time where after worship, after um, worship service, after um, you hear the word of God, people just pray, and bam, you say, let's pray. And people are just on their faces praying, on their knees, on their chairs, standing up, whatever it is, they're praying for like hours and hours and hours. There's this one particular student there. He was my year in college, and he had had some... Uh, a lot of run-ins with like, just like demonic encounters. Um, I, don't, I don't know what his story was, what his history was, but a lot of demonic manifestations that were showing in his life. Um, just all kinds of weird stuff. And he went to my home church also. There were times where he'd be at, at, at worship and his hands would just be like stuck in a position. And then he would just start like blabbering, uh, blasphemy, blasphemous words, even though he's like trying to pray. It's crazy stuff. But this one particular retreat, and, and, and my buddy was saying, it was a great retreat. Like people were just, Spirit of God was moving and people were responding to him. And during prayer time, as people are just calling out to God, in the middle of that, this, cat, this guy just starts up. 
just starts like slithering on the ground and making these like hissing noises. And they said it wasn't like a no- it wasn't like you do the worm, you know, break dancing. It was like these. It was like a human snake, and the movements were like so smooth and so like it was like this weird sense in which, yeah, there's something demonic about it. There was definitely something demonic about what was going on in Pergamum, whether it's because of, of, of these things, but probably one of the main things that was the draw of Pergamum, city on a hill, a thousand feet up in the air, there was an altar to the god Zeus. And on that altar, there was a, it was 40 feet up on top of a hill, and from all around the city, if you looked up at the hill, you could see that altar there. And perhaps that's the reason why Jesus said, this is the throne of Satan. Satan's city in which he dwells. All around the sculpture, right, there were pictures of snakes to the god Zeus. Snakes all around. And when people would look up, they would see that god and they would seek to worship him. Here's an interesting thing. Historically, in the, year, in the 1880s, there was a German archaeologist who went and he excavated. And he took this throne from modern-day Turkey, and he transported it to Europe where there is a museum, you could Google it, look it up, called the Pergamum Museum. And there, since 1880, it's been held in a city called East Berlin, Germany. And 50 years, 40 years after the throne of Satan, perhaps, was moved from Turkey to East Berlin, rose a diabolical leader named Adolf Hitler, who began to exert his demonic influence over the region that he lived, even though over 90% of Nazi Germany professed the name of Christ. You have an enemy that wants to destroy the church. Our church, all churches, the church with a capital C, but you have an enemy, and the people of Pergamum We're living on the devil's doorstep. What was he doing? How did he seek to destroy the church? Second thing that we see, we're going to see this in just a second. He tries through persecution, but the second thought is this. Persecution cannot destroy the church, but compromise will. Persecution cannot destroy the church, but compromise will. It says, in the midst of that city where Satan has his throne, verse 13, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Just like in all of the churches of Asia Minor, there was persecution that was running rampant throughout Pergamum as well. And it was bad, and people's lives were in danger. And throughout the Roman Empire, again, you could worship whomever you wanted to worship. You could worship Zeus. You could worship Asclepius. You could worship Jesus. You could worship anybody as long as in the day of worship to the emperor, you still gave your, uh, paid your respects to the emperor. It's, it's a pantheon of gods. It's a polytheistic place. As long as you worship this one god, the emperor, you can worship whomever else you want. So regardless of what else they were doing, the one thing about the people of God in Pergamum was that they did not renounce the name of Jesus. They were faithful to the name of Christ. 
even in the days of Antipas, we don't know much about Antipas, but church history uh, tells us that he was a faithful follower of Christ and he was put into a brass bowl. I don't know how big the bowl could have been, but then he was roasted <laughs> to death. And it says, even in the time like that, you remain faithful to my name. Because persecution was never, I mean, Satan would try and he tried. He's trying today and he's trying in many places throughout the world. Throughout history, he's been trying to kill Christianity by persecuting believers. But as Tertullian said, it was the blood of the martyrs. The blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. The church grows when martyrs' blood is shed, when people die for the sake of Christ, it's when the church is purified and the church is strengthened and the church actually begins to do the countercultural thing. And so what Jesus is saying is, try as he might, Satan will never be able to destroy the church, not through persecution. But after his words of commendation, he gives words of correction because he can do it in a different way. And this is what he says in verse 14. He says, nevertheless... I have a few things against you. He gives two groups of people. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I'll come to you and will fight them against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is saying, there, there's a couple things, though, that I just wanted to call out in your midst. You guys are faithful, almost, like, like the church in Smyrna, where Bishop Polycarp gave his life for me. You guys are faithful. You have not denied my name, even though people from your community were, their lives were taken for the sake of the gospel, and you still remained faithful to my name. You did not say, you know what, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. He said, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, guys, that he mentions two groups of people. And these two things you will see running throughout Scripture. Okay. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament days. He was, a, he was a prophet that was supposed to be of God, but he was actually not. The king of Moab, king named Balak, went to him and he said, you know what, I want to fight against the Israelites, but I don't think I can beat them because God's on their side. Can you curse them? Listen, if you curse them, then I'll give you a lot of money. Give you a lot of money if you just pronounce curse on them. Being a, being a bad prophet, he's like, yeah, you know what? I'll take your money. I'll take your money. I'll pronounce curses on them. And so he goes, and, and Balaam goes to curse the Israelites, but instead of cursing them because God's favor was on the people of God, instead of cursing coming out, a blessing came out, and he blessed them. It, it, it's, what was that movie called where that newscaster Steve Carell is trying to talk, say something, and then like, other words start coming out? That's kind of what, what Balaam was like. He's like trying to say something, but the opposite comes out. Three times this happens. And so Balak, the king of Moab, is upset. And so Balaam's like, you know what? Um, I still want your money, though. Yeah, is the offer still on the table? He said, I, if I can't curse them myself, then I can entice them into sinning in order that God would bring curses on them. So Balak's like, I don't care how you do it, just do it. And so Balaam got women from Moab, and he said, can you go and can you dance in front of the Israelite army? Can you do that? And so the people of God would fall into sin. And so it was. That's Balaam. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, there are people who bring Balaam's teachings into your church in Pergamum. 
What does that mean? He's, he's, he's saying bow down to idols, eat the food that was sacrificed to idols, and give yourself to sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans were the same people. We met them in Ephesus, right? They're the people who said, you know what, you're, you're in Christ. Jesus loves you. He forgives you. So you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Just go back to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness later. It was the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. It was the same poison in just two different bottles. Two different bottles, same poison, the poison of compromise. And the way that it was seen here was in your idolatry and in sexual immorality. Almost every letter talks about this, and you read this throughout the book of Revelation. It's these twin terrors of idolatry and sexual immorality that constantly, constantly tripped up good men and women of God throughout Scripture. And if we were to be completely honest right now, we would say that for probably for 99% of us, it's the same thing. Either idolatry on one hand, it's something else that we worship, something that we want so much that we will sin in order to get that thing. Whether it's your pleasure, whether it's your status, whether it's something that you've given your life to, something that you love more than Jesus. Something that when you think about it right now, in your daydreaming moments, your mind gravitates towards those things. For some, it's money. For some, it's, it, it's pleasure. For some, it's a person. Not only do you dream about it, but you have nightmares about it. If I lose this thing, it's that thing in your life. If you lose that thing, then you would even consider taking your life. If I lose that, then my life is over. You have nightmares about losing that thing. Maybe for some of you, it's your job. It's your security. It's your status. It's your reputation. It's that relationship. It's something in your, it's, it, it's your hobby that you play. Okay, maybe for some of you, it's your, it's your car. Maybe for some of you, it's golf. Maybe for some of you, it's that, it's that, that boy, that girl. It's your position in the firm. Wh whatever it might be. Okay, listen, guys, listen. And I want, I want to be clear about this. The thing you're most defensive about is the thing that's going to be most destructive in your life. That's not me. That's Tim Keller. The thing you're most defensive about in your life is the thing that's most destructive in your life. You know those things. You know those things in your heart, but you don't want to believe that it's true about yourself. Jesus says this is what the enemy is going to use to sink the ship of your life and of the church. Because the, the sin of the Balaamites and the, the sin of the Nicolaitans is the same thing. It's the same thing. It's, it's, it's idolatry. It's sexual immorality. Again, throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture you see this. Old Testament, New Testament, constantly talking about, why do we talk about sex so much? We're talking about sexual sin so much because the, because the Bible talks about it all the time, all the time. Because we could, go, we could go into it as, I mean, and the next, the next church in Thyatira, he talks, that's, that's basically what he talks about. Because it's a warning because so much of human nature gravitates towards uh, the good longings of God for sensuality within our hearts, but it gets twisted because of sin. And that's what happened within the church here in Pergamum. Saying so you hold to these teachings of the Nicolaitans. Here's the challenge. Satan will seek to destroy, not by persecution. It's not going to work to destroy the church. But if he gets a foothold in our lives, in our church, in the area of compromise, then there's a hole in the boat and the water's filling up quickly. Can't destroy it through persecution, but he will try, try, try through compromise in our lives. 
What are those areas within your life that are destructive, that are dangerous to the life of Christ within you? And if you don't check it, it will lead to damage and destruction and ruin in your life. You see, for the church in Pergamum, it was not only did compromise come in and, and they wanted to interact with it. They wanted to say, you know what, I want some of Jesus, but I also want some of this. These two things are incompatible with each other, right? It reminds me of the time I went to McDonald's. I was doing some work. This was pre-COVID. I was doing some, some work at the McDonald's cafe, and I was just like punching away, and I felt bad just using their Wi-Fi, and so I said, I got to go up and buy something. And at the time, I hadn't eaten at McDonald's in years. So I just I bought some cookies, and I bought some uh, vanilla ice cream. I was going to eat it together. And as I was, uh, as I had, the, the uh, cashier said, is there anything else I can get for you? I said, that's it. The cashier said to me, would you like to donate a dollar to fight childhood obesity. I'm like, hold up. Where am I again? I'm in McDonald's. Like, I am in the center of the worship of childhood obesity right here. And, I, and you're asking me to fight childhood obesity? This is crazy. What are you going to do? Like, how much money can I give to counteract all the damage that you're doing to child for childhood obesity? What are you going to do? Like, raise enough money to shut down this McDonald's? That would be fighting childhood obesity. You know, hand out running shoes with your extra value meals or like give out gym memberships to La Fitness with every Happy Meal that we buy. What are you, how are you going to do that? That's just incompatible with each other. And as silly as it is for someone at McDonald's to ask if I would like to donate money with my milk and cookies, ice cream and cookies, to fight childhood obesity, Jesus is saying the same thing about the way we often live as Christians. I want to be holy. I want to be dedicated to Jesus. But I also want to live in my idolatry and my immorality. Jesus says you can't have your cake and eat it also. Compromise for us comes in the way of our behavior and in our beliefs. Comes in our beliefs when we say, hey, you know what, guys, I, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to offend anybody in our culture. I don't want to offend anybody who's here. So I'm not going to talk about sin. I'm not going to call out. I'm not going to say the things that are wrong with what they're doing. Let's just, let's just pretend that everything is fine. Let's just be the most embracing and welcoming church in Asia Minor. We do that, don't we? But the message of Jesus is not politically correct. There will be times when we come to loggerheads with our culture. Again, it doesn't mean we're, we're annoying or we're, you know, we're, we're seeking to be like confrontational things. We're not trying to be like that. But we don't throw out our belief system for the sake of trying to be more palatable to people who don't want to call a spade a spade and call sin, sin. How we communicate and how we incarnate the truth is one thing, but to withhold it altogether is like the doctor who says to the person with cancer, no, you know what, you're all right. Tolerance doesn't work. 
Tolerance doesn't work when we're seeking to be the salt and the light of the world. There's a higher, higher value than tolerance, and Jesus says it's love. And love often means both truth and tears. That's what Jesus gave, right? Lazarus died. One gets truth, one gets tears. Jesus telling us this is how we, this is how we do life in this world as we hold the hope of the gospel. It's our beliefs, but also in our behavior. Guys, some of us have become not wanting to be offensive by the way that we live, that we don't look a lot different from the world. The way that we spend our money. You know, it, you wanna, what, is it, what does it look like? You know, the Bible says don't love money. It's the root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of teaching about money. Give it away, all that stuff. Do you want to see how the, the church embraced the use of their money? They said, God, this is not mine. This is not mine. The, the, the people who were the early church in Acts, they knew that what money God was giving to them, what they think they own was really on loan by God. And so they said, God, how can I use this, leverage this to build your kingdom, to invite people into my home? They didn't think about, oh, how can I use this money that you've given to me because of my hard work in order to build my kingdom and to stack my trophies and treasures one on top of another in order that my treasure would be built on earth so that I would have nothing when I get to heaven. That's not the way that the early church lived. The reason why this might sound offensive to us is because it's so countercultural, because it's, it's so countercultural to the way that a lot of us have been taught to live because we've been living according to the sermons and the songs that are being preached by the, by the devil through the music and the media of this world. I'm not trying to be politically correct today. Maybe you're going to be upset at me. That's okay. You'd be upset if I'm not teaching Scripture. But if I'm teaching what the Bible says, then you reckon this with God here, okay? Because it's compromise that's going to kill the church. It's not persecution. It's when we say, I want to look like the way. It's like that, that, that game that you used to play at the arcade where there's two pictures exactly the same, and you've got to, within 60 seconds, touch the parts of the picture that are different, Right? It's like the church and the world so often looks so similar that you're like, I don't know, I don't know what the difference is. And you're like trying to figure, okay, they, they call themselves Christian, beep. Uh, they go to church on Sunday, beep. Uh, they go to SNF or house church, beep. But they, they, the, 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 the things that they do with their time and the things they do with their money and the places that they go and the way that they talk and the way that they, all these other things just look kind of the same. And I just, time's up. I can't tell the difference. And all the while, while we get upset and we get defensive, there's one who sat on the throne in Pergamum who rejoices in the watering down of the faith of the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. Is there compromise in your life? What are the areas of compromise in your beliefs? When Scripture is clear about certain things, you say, ah, you know what? Maybe it's just, I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, the Bible's right about 99% of things, but this 1% is not really right. Is there compromise in your behavior, the way that you live? When you profess the name of the one who bled and died for me as we sing. 
Jesus is looking for a church that by grace and for love of God is pure in its devotion to him. Well, it's just a little bit of, it's a little bit of sin, a little bit of drugs, a little bit of crossing the line, a little bit, of, just a little bit. The third thing that we see is that compromise must be called out in the church. It's got to be called out in the church. That's on you and I. If we see it, you know, big thing these days, you see something, you say something. You see something in the church. Not your church, it's his church. Call that out. See, there were some people, Jesus says, presumably not a large group of people, but there were some people given over to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. But Jesus' rebuke was for the entire church, saying, you're letting this happen. Just a little bit here and there, just a little bit within the church, just a little bit within the house church, just one or two house churches, just one or two small groups that are doing things they ought not be doing. It's just a few people, just me and my circle of friends. This is isolated. Jesus says that's got to be called out if there's sin. The way that husbands are treating their wives, vice versa, that's got to be called out. The way that we talk about the things that we talk about, the use of our language, gossip. Are we just getting together? Just, it stays within us. It's just us five guys. We can talk about whatever it is. It's just for fun. Nobody's being hurt by it. It's gossip. Call it what it is. Ladies and gentlemen, call it what it is. And call that out. Be the person who says, you know what, this is not, this is not right for God's people. It's just a little bit. It affects the whole thing. Satan rejoices in compromise. A few years back, um, I, I think two years back, we were, uh, we were in California, part of sabbatical with my family and then uh, Olivia's brother's family, Justin, Kim and his family, my brother Terry, Kim and his family. Three Kims, we all, four, three families got together. We're hanging out at a hotel in San Diego. We're eating, hanging out in the pool. And there's other groups of people there. We're chilling, having a grand old time. And then uh, the other side of the pool, uh, see this little girl. She's probably like six, seven years old. And she starts like doing like funny stuff like this. She's like six, seven years old. And then all of a sudden, bam, comes out like, oh, this vomit, yaks. Whatever she ate for lunch, dinner, for like last three years, comes out into the pool. And it's like, like nastiness. Like. And so I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I said, Guys, I stood up and I splashed the water. I said, listen, if your last name is Kim, you need to get out of the water right now. That girl over there, that little Asian girl, we don't know who she is, but she vomited all over and this water is contaminated. It is hazardous waste. You need to get out of the water right now. Well, there was urgency. I didn't say it like that. I didn't want to put her on the spot. But I said, everyone, get out of the pool. Get out of the pool. And so they're like, why, why, what happened? Daddy, what happened? Uncle, what happened? And I couldn't say. That girl over there threw up all over. So I was just like, don't worry. Just come out. What happened? Can we go back in the pool? <laughs> no, you can't go back. What happened? Shh, just come over here. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think we're done in the pool for today. Uh, let's go out to eat now. We're going to uh, do something even more fun than the pool. Why? We love the pool. We just got into the pool. Yes, so did all this vomit, and now it's like craziness in there. But, but how, how long does it take? Can't we just take out the throw up in there? No. So the guy from the hotel comes, and he's like, 
oh, we're going to shut the pool down for the next four days. Maybe this is the way he talks. We're going to shut the pool down for the next four days because anytime there's vomit, <laughs> we got to clean the pool out. We've got to make sure that there's not a trace in it so we don't get sued. He's like, I give, you, I give you passes to our sister hotel that's down the road from here. The road was really, really long. It was like, like miles away. So I give you uh, access to our sister pool. And we're like, dude, nobody wants a sister pool. <laughs> like, we want to go to this pool. This is where our hotel is. Ain't nobody want that. So we, we went into, actually, that's a different story. I t- ask me about the hot tub story later. We went into the hot tub. I'll tell you now. I don't think there's, okay, so we're in a hot tub, <laughs> hanging out the hot tub, and we're like, okay, this is a safe place to be, and all of a sudden, that girl, you remember that girl came in the hot tub? I'm like, what the heck are you doing? You just threw up, and you're like, and then I looked over at her family, because I was about to, like, berate the family, and then I saw another girl with a towel on her, and she was crying, and she looked exactly like that girl, and I realized it was her twin. I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. But I was so mad at her twin sister, too, because I'm like, your sister looks exactly like you, just threw up and messed up everything for all of us. Because a little bit of vomit worked its way through the entire thing, and it affected everyone in the pool. The same way that a little bit of compromise does within the church as well. Wouldn't it be awesome if I saw that vomit and just said, don't worry about it, guys. Daddy, that kid threw up in there. Don't worry about it. No big deal. Just hang out. Swim over there. That's okay. You could even, yeah, but can I drink the water? Yeah, go ahead and drink a little bit of water. That's fine. That would be insanity. But what about when we don't call it out in the church? Let people live the way that they want to live. Well, it looked bad for that little hotel in San Diego that somebody had yak all over the pool. Didn't write a review about it, but it would have looked pretty bad. We're not talking about the name of a hotel. We're talking about the name of our Savior. Oh, I don't have, I don't have the right to call them out. We're not that close. He stood in your wedding. You ain't that close. I, I can't call them out. We don't know each other that well. They've been in your house church for 10 years. You can't call them out. What are you doing? What kind of relationship are you building then? You can't call out sin that's destructive to not only to him, but to their family and to the whole house church, and that affects everybody. Jesus said a little bit of yeast working its way through the entire dough gets it. What are the sin that we're afraid to call out in the life of somebody? Oh, I don't want to be judgmental. What does it mean to be judgmental? Does it mean that you can't call out sin? Jesus was constantly calling out sin. Paul was constantly calling out sin. Some of us think, it beca- again, we, man, it's so much like this accommodation culture, and we got to be politically correct. I don't want to offend anybody. To call out sin is not the same thing as being judgmental. You understand that. Jesus says, call out that sin, but take out that thing from your eye before you do so. In other words, don't make yourself better than you are or look down on somebody as you do this. But don't let that be an excuse to not call out that sin in the life of a brother or sister that you love and care about that Jesus gave his life for. Do you have friends who are falling into sin? And you're like, ah, we just never talked about spiritual things. Or, ah, it's his own life, you know, he's going to make his own choices. Or, I know what they're going to say anyways, so I'm not going to say anything. That doesn't relieve us of our responsibility a call on all of us to be the church 
that Jesus died for us to be. He didn't die for a compromised church. He died for a compromised church, but he didn't die that we'd remain that kind of a church. He died so that we'd become more and more beautiful as we get to our wedding day. We'd look more and more like our bridegroom. We'd look more like Jesus. He says here, repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and will fight against you then with the sword of my mouth. In other words, he's saying surgery is the only option to cut out that cancer from affecting the rest of the body. But he says, and if you do this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, listen to what I'm saying. Because here's what you have coming if you do. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Because guys, I got, you have no idea what is in store for the church that overcomes. The hidden manna, manna was God's provision from heaven. A lot of times we think, you know, if I stand for Christ, it's going to cost me. God says, I will, I will provide for you whatever you need. You take a stand for me, on the front end, on the back end, I will funnel provision into you. You don't need to worry about that. But the hidden manna, Jesus said, John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. I'm the, I'm the provision from heaven. And this hidden manna, what Jesus is saying is you will be able to experience an intimacy with me when the church is pure, unlike an intimacy that, uh, of the best days that you've had with me. Jesus is saying, what you get is more of me. Don't you want to, like, when we come to worship God on Sunday morning, don't you want to have that, like, that encounter with Jesus where he's so real and it's like honey on your lips. Every song, it's not like I got to wait for my favorite song and up, oh, they're not going to sing it today. Therefore, I'm just going to try to endure this and, and maybe fake it till I make it and conjure up some kind of emotion. No, saying there's an intimacy that's available. A hidden manna, it's hidden because not everyone experiences this. But you could have it, an intimacy with me. It's like right now, we're kissing Jesus through a veil. But when the veil is lifted, my goodness. That's available. He says, I'll give you a white stone. White stone was two things that it meant. One, if you were, if you were brought up on charges, if the jury threw out a black stone, it meant you're guilty. If they threw out a white stone, it means you're, all charges have been dropped. Jesus is saying to the ones who overcome, no matter what the world says about you, that you are a sellout to Jesus or you're too gung-ho or you know what, you're too much Hosanna, hallelujah, you're too much all this stuff, you've gone over, you're a Jesus freak, you're going to get killed for being a follower of Jesus. Says, no matter what they say, I will throw the ultimate stone of acquittal. Not only that, a white stone was a token given to victors in battle, in gladiatorial contests. It was given often to the winners in order that they say, you have done your job to please the king. You no longer need to fight anymore. Here's your token, entrance into the feast of the victors. It's an invitation to a feast that you're being invited to by the king of kings and the Lord of lords, far greater than any feast that any king could ever invite you to. 
And then he says, on that stone, there'll be a new name that only you know about. No one else will know about. I'll whisper it into your ear. It'll be the kind of thing when lovers whisper into each other's ears. And it's so intimate and so personal that you can't stop feeling, can't stop giggling in your heart, can't stop being filled with an overwhelming kind of a joy. The picture that Jesus is talking about with these three things, he's talking about a wedding. He's saying, when you get there, you're going to know that everything that you ever went through and gave up for me in this life was worth it. When with veil torn asunder, you will enter into an experience of intimacy with Jesus, you'll receive the stone, not a ring, but a stone that says you are forever his and never to be forsaken, and a name that is whispered into our hearts. There will be an intimacy. There is an intimacy with Jesus that's coming so soon and very soon to those who overcome. No matter what ridicule you get in this life from those outside the church or those inside it for being too much, why you always trying to call out sin? Why are you trying to be the sin police? I'm not. I'm just trying to be faithful to Scripture. No matter what you get in this life, Jesus says, I will be the one who brings acquittal to you. And ultimately, what grounds our desire to not live in compromise, but to live in faithfulness to Jesus, to call out the sin, is what we sung earlier today. Jesus, I just want to draw close to you. Never let me go. I would lay everything down again, my name, my reputation, my life, to hear you say that I'm your friend and so much more that you would whisper into our ears. We don't follow Jesus. We don't live in obedience for the things that we will get. We do it simply because Jesus is worthy. I read on one of my friend's desks a little card that some girl that liked him gave to him. He ended up being married to her. But she wrote on it a quote. It said, I don't want sunbursts or marble halls. All I, want, I just want you. I was like, what is that? And so I Googled it years later comes from a, uh, a girl named Anne, either Anne of Avonlea or Anne of Green Gables. But she was seeing this dude, and this guy apparently had to go to med school. And he said, three years later, until we can be with each other, three years later, and even after three years, I don't even, I can't promise you, I can't promise you the sunburst or marble halls. And in response to that, she said, I don't want sunbursts or marble halls. All I want is you. That's what the beloved say of Jesus. I don't need anything else, Jesus. I don't need the sunburst. I don't need the marble halls. I don't need anything. All I want is you. And that's what he holds out to his church. Let's pray together. Let's pray, confess any areas of compromise in our lives. in our behavior, in our belief, in our unwillingness to call out sin. It doesn't mean you get your machine gun, your spiritual machine gun, your rebuke machine gun and load it up with pellets to pound people with. I mean, speak the truth in love, grace and truth, even if it's your friend, even if it might be offensive at first. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, Proverbs says. But an enemy multiplies kisses. 
spend a few moments praying. Is there a friend in your life that's gone wayward and you haven't been willing to call that out? Is there sin in your life that you've been dabbling with because you don't think it's that bad? Hey, Satan wants to destroy the church and the way that he'll do it is not by persecution, he'll do it by compromise. The great problem of Pergamum wasn't persecution, it was their permissiveness. That was a poison that was poisoning the church. And it's doing that 2,000 years later today that Jesus says, yeah, he gives us the antibodies. He gives us the cure. Yeah, would you step into that? Let's pray for a minute like that. Ask the Lord that he would help us, change us, heal us, cleanse us, change us so that we could be more like him. Let's pray for a minute like that. Now pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that um, your grace is bigger than our failures. Your grace is bigger than our failures as individuals, absolutely. Your grace is bigger than our failures as a church. Pray that you would cleanse us, that you would purify us for sins that we've committed, sins of selfishness, pride, greed, materialism, giving you our second best, hypocrisy, lust, envy, anger, dishonoring our parents, not loving our spouses, our children, not putting you first above all things, not trusting you, not praying being half-hearted in worship. Father, our sins are deeper than the sea. But your grace goes further still because you loved us. You loved us. You loved us at such a cost. You pursued us in order that we might be the bride of Christ. Soon, and it gets closer every day, soon and very soon, King is coming to bring us home. When all the things that we've ever given up, all the fears that we've ever felt, all the ways in which we've given up houses or lands or reputation or whatever for the sake of Christ and your cause, soon and very soon, all those things will fade into the background and the beauty of Jesus will rise front and center. And the only regret we'll have then is that we did not give more and that we did not give sooner. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us. May we fall more and more in love with you. Thank you so much. We look to you now. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.